Hi, welcome to episode three of Crime Historian, the podcast. I'm your host, Ashley, teacher by day, true crime nerd by night. It should go without saying, but you never know, so let me start by saying, this is not safe for children to listen to. I'd like to tell you about a story that has haunted me since the day I first learned about it. Here's the backstory. I'm from a small town just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. That's L-O-U-I-S-V-I-L-L-E, also known as Louisville, but it's just Louisville to me. My parents both worked in the city, and though it wasn't a place to be feared, it was definitely an entirely different world than our little suburb. When I began researching this story, it seemed obvious to tell it to you from the killer's point of view. After all, that's the narrative we read in news stories and Wikipedia. Everyone wants to know who the killer is, why he did something so formidable, what his punishment will be. Viewers still ask questions about the victim, and when they do, the victim is reduced to just that, a victim. But our victims are round, three-dimensional characters with loved ones and friends and careers and feelings. I think sometimes when you're in the business of trading stories, this can be easy to forget. So, while most of us would not have heard of Brenda Sue Schaefer if she hadn't been a victim, it is clear that this story should be told as close to her point of view as possible. She lived 36 years before her life was unjustly cut short, and I intend to tell you what I know about her, the fullest background I could find, and maybe gain some insight into who she was before Melignato showed up. Huh, Melignato. Even saying that name makes me cringe. In fact, if you say this name to probably any adult who lived in Louisville, Kentucky in the 80s, the color would drain from their faces, just remembering the awful story. Here it goes. Brenda Sue Schaefer, born in the early 50s, raised in a strict Catholic household in Louisville, Kentucky, lived in the St. Matthews area, which is a really nice part of town, and eventually graduated from Wagner High School. Throughout high school, she dated her, well, obviously her high school sweetheart, because it's high school, and ended up marrying him. He was very controlling and misogynistic, especially by today's standards. Brenda was a virgin when she got married, and not unlike many female Catholics who grew up in strict Catholic households at the time, struggled with some guilt regarding sex. She didn't overcome that guilt, even with therapy. Additionally, her husband was a big spender, and his job as a police dispatcher wasn't enough to support his spending habits. He also reportedly drank too much, smoked weed, and did other things that generally rubbed Brenda the wrong way. While Brenda initially hesitated to divorce him due to her Catholic teachings, she went ahead with it and moved back in with her parents. It was tense due to her father's disapproval of the divorce, but she was economically unable to work anything else out and so became dependent on her family. Brenda eventually met a dentist, Jim Rush, who was good-looking and caring. Her family adored him, and he even reportedly rented a billboard downtown to be a giant love letter for her. However, Jim had a downside. He, too, drank too much. Brenda was not thrilled to marry another drinker and stalled on the idea of marriage. Her and Jim stayed together for about eight years, but according to Jim, see what I did there? There were sexual problems in their relationship. While these were not detailed in my sources, it's probably safe to assume that these problems were similar to the issues Brenda faced in her previous marriage. Brenda's next and last romantic relationship is the one that resulted in her untimely death. What happened to her was awful, and justice was not served in this case. It still infuriates the people of Louisville. 
mention this dude's name in town, and watch fists slam down on tables and heads shake in disgust. Brenda met Melignato through a good friend, Joyce, and Joyce's boyfriend. Though Mel was not attractive by conventional standards, Brenda was attracted to his attentiveness, his financial stability, and how he seemed genuine. Their first date was to the upscale Tartan's Landing, which is right on the Ohio River, for a ride in his boat. It's important to note that Brenda's family took an immediate dislike to Ignato. He is described as possessive, controlling, and narcissistic. Let me just pause here for a motherly word of caution. If your parents and family are genuinely good people and they hate your significant other, give their argument some consideration. Not to say that Brenda's responsible for becoming a victim. She wasn't. But know the signs of an unhealthy relationship. That's just my little PSA from an adult child of an addict who watched her mother go from one abusive relationship to the next. Anyhow, Ignato was a bit sexually depraved, or at least this is probably how Brenda would have assessed him. He often talked about deviant sexual acts in his fantasies, but she would not consent to them. Brenda told her friends that Ignato had her take what he referred to as sex tablets. She said that after she woke up naked and could not remember the events that happened, she began to fear for her safety. However, for whatever reason, she was not able to exit stage left from the relationship. Who knows why? Maybe she feared retaliation. Maybe he provided her security in other ways that she couldn't obtain herself. Or maybe she had little confidence in herself. Brenda, during this time, worked for Dr. Spaulding, a local dentist. In fact, she worked there for 12 years total. Dr. Spaulding adored Brenda, but he greatly disliked Mel Ignato. Ignato would call the office several times a day to belittle Brenda, fight with her over the phone, and accuse her of being too friendly with others. Ignato was reportedly a traveling salesman, whatever that means. I have no idea what he sold. I do know that he took trips overseas, and he supposedly scheduled telephone calls with Brenda in advance. If she missed the phone call, he would lose his cool with her later and become irate. According to my source, Ignato was also a very persistent, albeit annoying salesman who, quote, wouldn't take no for an answer, end quote. <sighs> Narcissistic salesman, the worst. Near the end of Brenda and Mel Ignato's relationship, she started fighting back with them. She met up with her previous boyfriend, Jim Rush, the dentist, and confided in him about the awful things Ignato put her through. She confessed that his sexual needs were too much and he wanted to be with her all the time. Jim told her to leave Ignato. September 21st, 1988. Brenda called Jim to tell him that she had broken up with Mel Ignato, but she would be seeing him next week to return some of his things. In the meantime, Mr. Ignato had been in touch with an ex-girlfriend, Marianne Shore. Remember this name. It'll be important later. Mel Ignato and Marianne dated for years though she was unattractive. Because Marianne was desperate for attention and probably a textbook codependent, Ignato gave her the security she desired. Her and Melignato's relationship was highly sexually charged, and they continued to see each other for sex even after their relationship ended, and even while he was seeing other people. Marianne was basically craving his attention, and when he began dating Brenda, Marianne was very jealous. At this point, I'm going to tell you the story in the order in which it played out to the public. 
It makes more sense this way when it comes to understanding why the people of Louisville felt that justice was not served for Brenda. On September 24, 1988, Brenda Sue Schaefer did not come home after her date with Mel Ignato. Her brother and brother's girlfriend reported her missing immediately and began searching for her. Very early, Sunday morning, September 25th, Brenda Schaefer's car, an 84 Buick Regal, was found abandoned on Interstate 64. The missing persons case opened by the St. Matthews Police Department was handed over to Jefferson County Police, who noted that her car's right tire was flat, it had been broken into because the radio was missing, there were small traces of blood in the back seat, and a handprint was on the back tailpipe. All of these factors indicated potential foul play. Ignato himself even called the police that day to report Brenda missing. The lead investigator knew immediately that Mel Ignato was a suspect due to him being the last person to see her alive. Brenda's brother's girlfriend also clued him into Ignato's sexual tendencies and behaviors. Of course, this was all information that she had received from Brenda herself. Ignato was interviewed and reported that Brenda agreed to go out with him one last time for closure and to return the jewelry he had bought her throughout the course of their relationship. He said Brenda picked him up at about 3 in the afternoon. He couldn't drive his car due to a tire problem. They drove around town for a while and ended up at Oxmoor, an upscale mall around 6.30 p.m., and then Captain's Quarters, a nice grill on the Ohio River, around 9. He stated that Brenda dropped him off at his mom's house around 11.30 that night, and then he went to Skyline Chili and ordered spaghetti, chili, and a Coke. However, there was a hole in his story. Ignato was seen driving his Corvette around on the day after he and Brenda's so-called date. Police did not trust Ignato at all. He was argumentative during interviews, and he reportedly asked more questions than he actually answered. He obtained a lawyer immediately. It was at this time that the press began painting Mel Ignato and Brenda Sue Schaefer's relationship as less than ideal. The town convicted Ignato before Brenda was even found or the trial began. Mel decided that in order to gain credibility, he would testify in front of the grand jury. Keep in mind that when testifying before a grand jury, you are under oath. And in his mind, if he testified successfully, it would make him come across as innocent. Though Ignato's lawyer advised against it, he prepared Mel for questioning anyway. In Mel Ignato's mind, the media had ruined his reputation, and though he was distraught over it, he was going to set things right with his testimony. At this point, Mel Ignato had no income, had lots of debt, and was on all kinds of medicine. During the grand jury testimony, the prosecutor asked Ignato if he ever put a rag soaked with chloroform over Brenda's mouth while she was sleeping. Mel Ignato's response, verbatim. I have bad allergies, and I take shots for it. You know, I get stopped up at night, and I take a handkerchief or Kleenex to bed with me quite often, and Brenda gets stopped up occasionally. The prosecutor followed up, asking, did you all put it on each other's faces, or did you put it on your own? He responded, Oh no, just use it ourselves if we need to. But I mean, you know, how you'll get playful sometimes. The prosecutor noted how nervous Mel Ignato became after he asked him about the chloroform. Ignato reportedly went on and on about his drinking problems and how he had been suicidal until he found faith after joining Southeast Christian. For non-natives, that's our local megachurch. When asked if he killed her, Ignato responded. No, absolutely not. I did not kill her. I would not have laid a finger on that woman. 
Notice the absence of contractions there. Sorry, maybe I read too much criminal profiling. Supposedly, one of the markers of a liar is the absence of contractions. Anyway, the person who would really throw a wrench into this case was Marianne Shore, his ex-lover. Marianne lived on Poplar Level Road in a small two-bedroom home. Right after Brenda disappeared, the lead detective visited Marianne at home to ask her questions about Mel and Brenda. Marianne provided no information that would actually help the investigation. She told police she dumped Mel four years prior in 1984 due to his disinterest in a long-term marital commitment. Agnato only wanted sex. However, a few months after the grand jury was held, Marianne Shore and her lawyer met with the prosecutor. According to Marianne Shore's story, Brenda was raped, sodomized, and murdered in her home. She herself had been an accomplice. Mel had given Marianne a list with supplies to obtain to torture Brenda, and Marianne had obtained the supplies. Mel also reportedly dug the grave in advance. According to Marianne, Mel tied Brenda to the glass coffee table, remember that, raped her, took her to the bedroom, and then killed her with chloroform. Mel also allegedly tested Marianne's house for sound barriers, having previously ordered Marianne to scream as loud as she could while he stood outside. This was to ensure the neighbors would not hear anything when he tortured Brenda. Furthermore, and this is sickening, Marianne took photos of Brenda and Mel as he tortured and raped Brenda. Ultimately, Mel Ignato and Marianne Shore closed the night by folding up Brenda's body, tying it together, dumping her in a trash bag, and burying her in the hole. This confession led to Marianne agreeing to wear a wire so they could eventually arrest Mel Ignato. So it's simple. Marianne meets up with him, Mel confesses his guilt, they arrest him, get a conviction, and the case is closed. Right? No. If it were that simple, it would not be a story I was telling you. While I firmly believe that everyone's story deserves to have an audience, unfortunately, the rape, sodomization, and murder of a female is not unheard of, and it's not exactly remarkably surprising. Not to insinuate that it isn't important or awful, it is. But if it ended here, it would just be a collective, mournful blip in Louisville's memory. But it didn't end like an episode of Matlock, and it is more than just a blip. It's at least a blot. Marianne arranged to meet with Ignato, and she did wear a wire. Her job was to have Mel admit his guilt or to make a reference to Brenda's murder somehow. They met at an ice cream parlor. At one point, Ignato says, Believe me, that's not shallow. That place we dug is not shallow, so don't let it get you rattled. It could not be determined whether Mel said, That place we dug is not shallow, or that place we got is not shallow. It was hard to understand. Marianne Shore went back home and met with the FBI and the lead detective. She then told them more about Brenda's torture. She told them that Mel Ignato was not satisfied with his sex life with Brenda. He thought she was frigid and wanted to bring her to Marianne's for a so-called sex therapy class. She also told them that Brenda's grave was dug well before the murder, back in August. She explained that Mel wanted her to be involved in Brenda's rape, but she wasn't comfortable and said she didn't want to be there. So why was she there? Anyway, she then took them to the bedroom and showed them the exact bed that Brenda was murdered on. After some debate, the detectives decided to arrest Ignato. A search of the house upturned a fraternity paddle with a leather strap attached, a camera with film inside, and a dirty spade, 
also known as a garden tool. His bail was set at $500,000, and he pled not guilty. Brenda's body was found the next day, exactly as Marianne described. The grand jury indicted Ignato on murder, kidnapping, sodomy, sexual abuse, robbery, and tampering with evidence. Marianne Shore received a lesser indictment of tampering with evidence due to her assistance in obtaining the needed evidence. Ignato's lawyer requested and received a change of venue, which was likely a huge factor in the lack of justice meted out. Mel's trial lasted for 11 days, and Marianne was scheduled to testify. The prosecutor ended his opening statement by saying, I expect you to find Mel Ignato guilty, and afterward, I would ask you to sentence the defendant to death. The defense played up Shore's unreliability due to her history of petty theft. She also reportedly wore a miniskirt to the trial and was laughing during questioning. This largely affected her credibility. I don't know, maybe she was nervous. Maybe miniskirts were normal dress for her. Anyhow, the lawyers went back and forth, making objections, and the jury finally returned a verdict. Not guilty. What? Not guilty. The verdict left people astounded. Now, was Ignato not guilty because he wasn't really guilty? Nah, just not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Plus, the trial was around Christmas and was held away from Louisville in Covington, Kentucky, so many people blamed the distance and the timing for the verdict. According to Wikipedia, the judge who presided over the trial was embarrassed for the verdict and even sent an apology to the Schaefers for how it turned out. Also, Brenda's parents reportedly both died before her trial due to the stress of it all. But that wasn't the end. Melignato signed his home over to his defense attorney to pay his outstanding legal bills. His attorney then sold the house to a couple who sought to refurbish it. Can you see where this is going? In June of 1992, the couple decided they hated the carpet and scheduled new installation for October. On Thursday, October 1st, 1992, workers pulled up the carpet. Under the carpet, in the corner, was an air vent. Inside the air vent was a storage bag. Inside the storage bag was three rolls of undeveloped film and Brenda Schaefer's missing jewelry, specifically a ring, a necklace, and a tennis bracelet. The couple, apparently knowing who the home previously belonged to, smartly contacted the FBI. The photos were developed immediately. This is sickening. The images showed Brenda tied to the coffee table at Marianne Shore's house and gagged in the exact way Marianne had described. Remember, the glass coffee table. There were 112 photographs altogether, each one reportedly worse than the last. And the background of each photo was a man only pictured from the shoulders down. The photographer, which we know is Marianne, was very careful not to photograph the man's face. The investigators knew then that they had Melignato beyond the shadow of a doubt for Brenda Sue Schaefer's murder. Just one problem. Ignato had already been acquitted. And so the doctrine of double jeopardy came to bite the investigation in the ass and ensure that Brenda's murder would not be thoroughly prosecuted. For those of you who are not familiar with double jeopardy, it's the same thing as double indemnity, I believe. LegalDictionary.net defines it as the subjection of an individual to a second trial or punishment for the same offense or crime for which he has already been tried or punished. It's basically a clause in the Fifth Amendment that was intended to 
prevent the government from erroneously or maliciously convicting innocent people and to protect them from the consequences of successive prosecutions. Furthermore, it helps to preserve the finality of criminal proceedings. In other words, it's something you want on your side if you were being prosecuted. There's also an Ashley Judd, Tommy Lee Jones movie by the name of Double Jeopardy. It's from the 90s, and it's pretty badass. Check it out if you haven't seen it. However, the FBI and the Jefferson County Police Department went to Ignato's apartment anyway to make an arrest that took him by surprise. At this point, the trial had been over for about six months, and Ignato was keeping a low profile, mainly due to being the most hated man in the city. The existence of the photos was leaked to the media. Ignato was taken directly to Louisville's FBI headquarters in order to strip down naked and be photographed for evidentiary purposes. They were then compared to the photos found at his former home. The male in the picture matched Ignato. No doubt remained. Not that it ever really did. Everyone knew the first trial was a wash, but they couldn't get Ignato for the murder. The Constitution trumped their evidence. However, on October 2, 1992, Mel Ignato finally confessed to Bernice Sue Schaefer's murder in front of the Schaefer's. During his confession, he assured his captive audience that Brenda had died peacefully. What the? But all hope for justice was not lost. Due to Ignato being under oath for the first grand jury and lying about having committed the murder, he was ultimately convicted of perjury and sentenced to eight years in prison. He only served five years, with time credited to him for serving as he waited the original murder trial. Marianne Shore served three years, having been released early for good behavior. She died in 2004 of heart complications. You'll be glad to know that Melignato is also now deceased. Or maybe you won't. I don't know how you feel. But his death, while not performed at the hands of the executioner, was ultimately performed by the hands of karma. That is, if you believe in that sort of thing. Because, you see, Ignato did not die of a heart attack or a stroke. Nope. He died on September 1st, 2008, when he tripped, fell onto his glass coffee table, and bled to death. It's not exactly the whodunit of the year, but this is the sort of story that makes you sick to your stomach to imagine, and the only closure you get from it is Ignato's own sad-ass ending, orchestrated by the maker of What Goes Around Comes Around. I would like to give a shout-out and a special thanks to the report on juryverdicts.net for 90% of this information and the structure of the story. I would not have found such comprehensive information if not for their willingness to share their files openly. If you're interested in learning more about the case, there is a book, though I've not read it myself, titled Double Jeopardy by Bob Hill. Hey, it has 4.6 stars on Amazon. If you read it, let me know how it is. As always, send me an email at crimehistorian at gmail.com to say hello. Like the podcast on Facebook, just search Crime Historian. Follow at Crime Historian on Instagram or visit us at CrimeHistorian.com. Also, don't forget to rate and or view the podcast on iTunes. In the new year, I hope to get more deliberate about releasing episodes on a schedule. Get in touch if you have any story ideas you'd like to see covered. I appreciate y'all. Thanks for listening.